I invite you to take your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning as we continue in our series in the book of Romans and particularly our series now in Romans 8, Living by the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 28 to 30, incredibly important and beautiful passage of Scripture. And here's what we read. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, do guide us today in truth. There's people in this room, there's people watching online who have things that have come into their lives that really are hard to put their arms around, to understand. And God, we ask you most of all to come alongside of them as yourself. God of all comfort, Father of mercies, But also, Father, teach us from this passage. May we find hope in it. May we glean understanding of you in the midst of it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you do a Google search, which I've done, of of the top 20 favorite verses at various websites, or if you look at the verses that are most Uh, looked at in Bible search engines, you will find that Romans 8.28 is invariably listed among the top 20. Now, that's not a small thing considering there are over 31,000 verses in the Bible. These are the the, the real home run hitters. These are the best sellers, if you will. And this passage is so loved because it assures us there is a purpose in stuff that is going on in our lives. It gives value to all of life's circumstances. It gives confidence when life is chaotic. It gives hope. Most people want to believe that there is a purpose to their lives, that they're not just living randomly without meaning, that they can't make a difference. But this idea of a higher purpose, of a bigger meaning to life, is a uniquely spiritual reality and truth. Those that believe in a naturalistic view of life, that believe in an atheistic view of life, have a hard time embracing the concept that there is a bigger meaning or a, a purpose behind it all because a purpose behind all of life, a bigger meaning in life that's being, with a life that's being orchestrated towards an end and a purpose involves design and purpose and, 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 and some kind of cosmic designer working through the circumstances of life. We see that, and I just want to illustrate this for a couple of minutes before we dive into the passage. The existentialists were one of the most prominent philosophical groups in, in last generations. Um, during the 1950s, many of their um, adherents started writing plays. They called them the theater of the absurd. They were particularly performed in Europe at the time. And these plays were basically taking the life philosophy, which said there, there is no God, therefore there is no cosmic 
meaning to life. There's no purpose behind stuff. And basically they said life is absurd. I mean, you can't look for a higher purpose. And so their plays tended to go nowhere. They had no real point. They were intentionally absurd without moral, without point to them. Naturalistic scientists who deny the supernatural element of life often come to a similar conclusion that it is a meaningless existence. There's no purpose to look towards. Paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould championed this conclusion as he said, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists. One of the four or five horsemen of the the neo-atheists Richard Dawkins said it this way, human existence is neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous, indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. And Walter Stace, former professor of philosophy at Princeton, said this, the picture of a meaningless world and a meaningless human life is, I think, the basic theme of much modern art and literature. Certainly, it is the basic theme of modern philosophy. The world is just what it is, and that's the end of all inquiry. There's no reason for its being what it is to ask any questions about why things are thus or what purpose their being so serves is to ask a senseless question because they serve no purpose at all. But this passage is saying that there is purpose, that there is purpose to your life. And you can have confidence that God is at work in your life, particularly if you are among those addressed in verse 28. He says, all things work together for good. I want to give a quick disclaimer and then a quick definition and we'll dive in. The disclaimer is this. Paul is certainly not saying that all evil produces all goodness. This Pollyanna view that rape and abuse and genocide and prejudice bring about an equal measure of goodness would be an absurdity. Much evil just produces evil. And there is not an equal measure of goodness growing out of it. So what is this passage saying when it says, all things work together for good? It's saying this, for those who love God, Not one incident in your life is being wasted because God is fulfilling his specific plan for you in it, a plan that leads to good in your life. It's a mouthful, but we'd like to look at that. There are three questions I'm going to raise from this this passage and try to respond to them this morning. The first question basically is, who is this promise for? And he tells us, and he he tells us the individual in verse 28, and he, he he describes them in two ways. He says those, there are those who love God and, there are those, and, and those same people are those that are called according to God's purpose. Those who love God. Okay, those who love God are the ones that, that all the things are going to work together and, and, and they're going to weave together and make this beautiful tapestry in their lives towards good. So who are the people that love God? Are these monks? Are these nuns? Are these people that give their lives to missionary work? I mean, who are the, who are the people that love God? And the interesting response that we get from the scriptures is this. Those who love God are those who have been loved by God. That love is all, for God is always responsive. 
Matter of fact, the Apostle John said it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he loved us first. That our capacity, that which draws and, and evokes love from us towards God is always, we have been the recipients of love. And we have come to embrace and understand what it means that we have a God that is not a, a heavenly, far-off, distant policeman. That he's a father, and he's a shepherd, and he loves, and his very nature is to love. And Paul says those who love him are those that have been loved by him and have allowed him to express his love in their lives. That's why in the book of Ephesians, Paul is talking to the believers in chapter 4 and 5 in Ephesians. And he's saying, I, I want you to grow in your love for God, and I, I want you to grow in your love for each other. And so he says at the end of chapter 3, he says, that's why I'm praying this prayer. Here's what he prayed in verse 18 through 20 of Ephesians 3 as a prelude to their being able to love God and love others. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long, how high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, Paul is saying, who are those that love God? Those that have been loved by God. Those that know God's love, that have been drawn into an awareness of what it means that God is a loving Father in their lives. And Paul is addressing those people here, those who love God. And he said, those are the ones who are called according to his purpose. Now, this word called is a word he uses often in his book here in Romans, and he does it in the very first verse in the very first chapter. And he gives us a, a tip-off of what this concept of being called means. In Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of God, called to be an apostle. Paul says, I was, I was called to this thing. I was selected and drawn to the role of being apostle. And then he says, and, and this is who you guys are. You are the ones who are, in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 1, you are the ones who are loved by God and called to belong to Jesus Christ. You've been selected and drawn to a particular expression of God's love and to belong to Jesus Christ. He says, these are the people that I'm talking about this amazing promise to. Lovers of God. The ones who have been called to belong to Jesus and therefore to experience what he's telling us as his plan in verses 28 to 30. So what is the promise? What's the promise that's made to those people? Well, it's, it's amazing. He says all things work together for good. I want to cover that phrase and I want to highlight two parts of it. First, he says all things work together for good. The word work together, it, it, he doesn't just say all things work for good. It's actually a word that is a compound word. The word orga, which means work, or, 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 ergonomics, or ergonomics is the um, study of uh, people's efficiency in work performance, their, their work behavior. And Paul is saying these things are working, but he puts the, the prefix soon, which means with. S-U-N means with. He says, these things are working together. They're all working together. They're working together to bring about good. 
They're co-laborers. That's why Romans 16 verse 9 uses that ver- the word co-worker is the exact same word that is used here in a verbal form, working together. They're co-workers. In your life, all things are co-working together for good. He says, okay, wait a minute. Because, uh, you know, Mark, I'm not really tracking real well with you on this because... I don't feel things are all working together for good. I'm ready to kill one of my kids right now. I, I, my job is, is, I just lost my job. and I, don't, I mean, how is this working together and partnering with me? This doesn't feel good. It feels bad. It feels crazy. It feels draining. Well, in, in our definition of good, which is typically prosperity or health or Good relationships or happiness or relatively pain-free situations, those things don't feel good. So what does good mean here? Well, he tells us in verse 29. The good that he promises will come out is this expression. You will be conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. If If you belong to Jesus, which is again what we're called to, if you have experienced God love, God's love and you now love God, he says, the good which is that you will be more and more shaped into the character of Jesus Christ, God is using every experience of your life to bring that about. That is the ultimate good for your life. And now he gets really uh, wild in his expression. Because the other thing I would highlight here is that it is all things working together for good. Now, in the original, the term all things is best rendered by the phrase all things. We got it, right? All things. Not select. He says all things. Okay, so what? Wait, wait. All things? I got a few. What are you talking about when you say all things are working together for good? All things are helping me conform to the image of Jesus. What are those all things? Well, I'd like to suggest there are at least four that I think we can biblically definitively say that are involved in the all things that are working as partners together, that are co-laborers, co-workers in this process of conforming us to the image of Jesus. Number one is positive events. We like these. These are our favorites. The all things that are working together of positive things are anything that, that is an enjoyable experience that we're grateful for that is helping us to become like Jesus. For instance, you pray, and God answers your prayer. And because he answers your prayer, you feel more like Jesus, that you you trust the Father more. You've seen that he's personally involved in your life. He listens to you. He listens to you like he listens to Jesus. And there is a drawing. I'm being made more like Christ, just like Jesus. Trust the Father. I'm trusting the Father. There are situations in your life where you have the privilege of, of helping others and the God-given gifts and abilities and, and, and wiring in you that are used. You sense the joy of that and the experience of that and it draws you closer to God. And, and so it is like Christ who came to do the ministry of the Father. You're becoming more like Christ. Incredible moments of joy with friends and the enjoyment of people, just like Christ, the ultimate community builder and relational individual. Encounters with nature's beauty where you see the goodness of God and love Him more because of it. Any experience of wholesome joy where you enjoy God helps you be like Jesus, who it says 
always delighted in the Father. All those things are used by the Lord and many others, positive things in our lives that causes us to be more shaped into, yeah, I'm, I'm coming to love God. I'm coming to know God. I'm coming to experience God just like Christ does as I'm doing life with him through those positive experiences of life, through friends that speak truth into my life. But then there are other things that are a part of the all things, hard things, sufferings and catastrophes. God does not waste those experiences. Some of you are here with astonishingly hard things recently. You feel the weight and sorrow of life. Some of you have physical pain right now, medical setbacks, family heartache, bruising conflicts that you're in the midst of. You feel the weight of it and the sorrow of it and the difficulty of it. What this passage is reminding us is that God is not outside of the hard things in our lives. That he is not just jumping in to put out the fire. He is in the fire. Now, he may, he, he does not specifically, we're told, cause that, but he allows that, and by allowing that, we would say there is involvement in it. There is permission that he's given Yes, we live in a fallen world, a broken world, a world that is not, it's aberrant. It's not the way it should be. We saw that, Romans 8, verses 18 to 25. He talks about a world that's, that's, that's not the way it ought to be. It's not the way it's going to be. But this passage is saying that it is more than just God looking at aberrant circumstances or sorrow or hardship that comes to our lives and he jumps in to be alongside of us. It says that God is ultimately in those things as an initiator and overseer. It says in the book of Job, God has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. The word whirlwind could be translated tornadoes. Those are scary, climactic Weather events. It says God has his way in those. God superintends. He oversees. And you say, wait a minute. Do you know how destructive those can be? Somehow God is superintending those things. He is not outside of the hard things of life. And it's easy to try and compartmentalize life. God's in this, but he's not in this. But you can't compartmentalize life that way. I remember watching... Years ago, the movie Hook, and I think, I, I think um, Robin Williams' name was Peter Bannon, and, and the, he was a lawyer. He became Peter Pan. You really need to watch a movie to, to get this. But he was getting ready to, he had to take a plane flight, and he didn't want to fly. He's scared of flying. I mean, everybody knew it. All the people in his office, all the men, all the women were there, and they had a party for him, and he was a wreck because he's scared to death to get on the plane. And a coworker came to him and he said, Peter, you don't need to be worried because he said, nothing will happen to you unless it's your time. So he's trying to get a little encouragement out of that. I said, okay, nothing's going to happen. And then he goes, what if it's the pilot's time? <laughs> you, can't, you can't say, well, God's only in this, but he's not. He, things are all connected. They're interworking. He's either overseeing or he's, he's sitting back and, 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 and he can't just jump in, jump out, jump in, jump out. He's involved. He's overseeing. Life is tied together. 
And God is using all the affairs and circumstances of life as co-workers to bring about good in your life. When we lost our 19-year-old son drowning in our pool, it would not have helped us at all to hear life is just random. It's a sin-scarred world. It's out of control. God couldn't do anything about it. I don't believe God pushed my son into the pool. But I believe God allowed it. That was tremendously helpful to us in the midst of trying to pick up the pieces of our brokenness and sorrow to know that somehow little Sethi had fulfilled his full life as ordained by God in this world. That he didn't just get robbed in the next 49 years that really, too bad, it's gone. No. He, he, he had completed the journey here, and we're glad where the next part of the journey is. The thing that helps is knowing that there is a God that is saying, I am using all the circumstances of life as co-workers. And what I'm using it for, for my children, is to conform to the image of Jesus. And there's going to be time when we're totally not understanding how that can work. And, and you say, as I said, as I verbally said to my friend who, who was talking in my life, I said, I don't care about what God's doing in my life. I want my son. We feel that way, but, we get, but I also now look back and I say, Believe God is at work in our lives. God is using the circumstances of our lives to bring about good. It is not only catastrophes and sufferings and hard things. It is someone else's sins. That's a part of the old things. There's a guy in the Old Testament named Joseph. He's a young guy. And he was the 11th brother of 12. And this particular brother was the favorite of the father by far. He, the father was unwise. And Joseph was unwise in his response. He took pleasure in his position. He sort of lorded it over his older brothers, which never goes well with older brothers. And they were envious of him. Some of them hated him. And one day Joseph was, and he was given this beautiful robe that none of the other brothers were given as a way of his father's affection. Many colored deal. And, and uh, one day he was, sent by his father to find the older brothers because they were out with the sheep and he didn't know where they were and they were miles away and the father was concerned he wanted to get word. So Joseph was sent. And they saw him coming and the brothers took Joseph and some of them wanted to kill him. But what they did instead was they put him in a cistern, a, a dry well, and all of a sudden one day a, uh, a group, a caravan of slavers came by and they sold him into slavery and they took his robe and they took an animal and the blood of the animal and they put it on the robe and they told their father that it was Joseph's blood and that they had found him. They'd found the robe and he'd been killed by wild animals somewhere in the wilderness. And they wronged him. They did evil against him. They lied. They deceived their father. They did unspeakably terrible things. And then many years later, Joseph, under the hand of God, was taken to Egypt. And while he was there, after a variety of circumstances, he's, he's in a situation where he, he ultimately, over time, gets raised to the number two man of Egypt. And when this famine came, uh, Joseph's relatives, the, the 70 of them, are in danger of famine. And so they hear about some food in Egypt, and they go down to Egypt, 
And they appear before the number two guy because he's in charge of all the food. He's the one that's taking care of all the foodstuffs and the storehouses. And he recognizes his brothers when they stand before him. And eventually in the process, he tells them this remarkable statement. It's found in Genesis 45. Here's what he says. He says, now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. In another, he saw them again, and this is what he told them in Genesis 50. He even elaborated on it more. And he says, as for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring, about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What he says is, you did wrong. You, you don't get a pass for the way you behaved and what you did. But understand what I understand. Your intention was evil, but God was using your intended evil to accomplish great good. And somehow he allowed your evil to fulfill his overall plan to bring about good. The greatest example of this is Jesus Christ on the cross. The first sermon ever preached in the New Testament church was preached by Peter. And here's his words. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You're culpable. What you did was evil. You murdered him. You raised up false accusations and he was killed on the cross. But you need to understand that there was a hand behind your hand. There was a God that was sovereignly using this to bring about the good of the, of the, the redemption and salvation of, of millions of individuals. God can use evil to even bring as part of the co-partners an injustice. This week I had coffee with a pastor friend in the area named Pastor Ayman. Pastor Ayman is the pastor of the uh, Arabic evangelical church in our area. And he had asked to meet with me because he wanted me to introduce, to be introduced to a friend of his. And this guy that was with him is a man who is in the Arab world. Uh, he is here with a pseudonym for his own protection. And he has come out of uh, the, the Middle East. He is, still has an incredible um, Impact in the Middle East, I, I can't tell you his stories. They're astonishing of what he's doing, but being used to disciple and train people in all different countries in the most risky of circumstances. And he's written a book, and the book is the story of his life. He gave me a copy. He signed for me. I can't wait to read it. It's just listening to his stories. But but he told me humbly that to his surprise at Urbana, which is a student missions fellowship takes, event that takes place, I think it's every two years outside of Chicago, 20,000 college Christian kids, hot for God, get together, and they meet for four days in December, and every day they announce a book that they think everybody should buy and read uh, in order to help them. Well, his book was one of, one of those books. He's being used of God to be impacting, but he said something to me. He talked about Egypt, and he said in Egypt, the Egypt, the, the Brotherhood, which is the radical Islamic group, 
has so alienated people in Egypt that two million Egyptians have become atheists. And he says the result of their becoming atheists is they're at sea in their, in their perspective of God, and many of them are turning to Jesus Christ as their Savior. And he says in ISIS, he said throughout, and he's been in all those places, in, in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, he said what ISIS is doing is, is so causing people to question their, their historic faith that many are now open, he says, there is an incredible turning in those countries to people embracing the message of Jesus Christ as Savior of their lives. And he said, I don't know how you're going to hear this statement, but he said, I thank God for ISIS. Now, is he saying God is responsible for the, for the atrocities of ISIS? Absolutely not. He's totally not supportive of those things, obviously, Terrible, but what he is saying is God can even work through evil to bring about good. That God can even use things that we would not understand how he could use as co-workers. But God can even use our sins. The deepest failures of our lives, the most shameful of our habits, the most disappointing of our failings, God uses to show us things we don't see otherwise. We see our own ugliness, our own self-absorption, our sin. Why does God show them to us? Is it to shame us? Is it to mock us? Is it to rail at us? No. The more we see our unworthiness, our brokenness, the more we see the depths of his love. That the gospel declares that you are more corrupt, self-centered, and evil than you ever dared believe. But you are more accepted, loved, and valued than you ever dared hope. That God shows us our hearts, often through our failings, which enables us then to see his heart. That he conforms us through the image of Jesus, even through our screw-ups. Some of you are here right now and just absolutely, the devil is just beating you up from one side of the room to another. How can you be a Christian? You do this, you do this. I'm going to tell you, this is a perfect moment to lean into Christ. God is using that and willing to use that. Your own, your own distrust of yourself. Seeing more as your onion gets pulled back a little more, the ugliness of your own heart. Not to leave you there. It's to show you more of his heart. It's to show you more of his grace and his love. Why? Because those who love God are those who have been loved by God. We love him more when we are more loved. Doesn't mean he's changing his love. It means we've grown in our appreciation of his love. All things are working as partners for the good of conforming us to the likeness of Jesus. Jesus who delights in his Father, who lives in joyful communion and relationship with his Father, who exudes love and peace and joy and kindness and gentleness. We're being shaped into that likeness through the all things that are partnering together in our lives. And then the last question is this. Why is this promise true? And he tells us it's because we're called according to his purpose. And then he delineates what that is. The word purpose is the word 
that is made up of two words. Again, it's a compound word. The word pro, which means before, and the word tithemi, which means to set in place. It is a plan that is set in place beforehand. It is a designed plan of God. It says, those he foreknew, and that carries the idea of loving beforehand, a predeterminate plan. It says of Acts 2.22 that Jesus' death was, was not just foreknown of God. He did more than just know about it. He planned it. He purposed it. Those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justifies, he will also glorify. The reason that you can be sure that everything going on in your life is designed to conform you to Jesus is because you are on a sovereignly designed plan that didn't begin when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, that didn't even begin when you took your first breath. It began cosmically in the past that God has been at work in your life, that God chose you in eternity past because he wanted you, he pursued you, he has predestined where that will end in the likeness of Jesus Christ. You don't belong to Jesus because of something in you that made you want him more than someone else. Jesus said this very clearly in John 6. In John 6, verse 44, he's talking to people, and he's saying, you know, nobody comes to me except something takes place. Here's what he says. No one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, the word draw is used in the Gospels. The other uses of of the word in the Gospels is this. It was used of a fishing net. And, and the idea was the fishing net was thrown over, and, it says, and then they drew it, literally, they dragged the net full of fish into the boat. Now, as that net is being dragged, none of the fish in the net are going, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me, take me into the boat, take me into the boat. They don't want to get in the boat. They want out. But they're being dragged. And Jesus says, unless my Father is drawing you, not because you can't wait to jump into the boat of faith, God in his mercy is drawing and pulling and pursuing. He says, this is the picture of grace. You belong to him because he wanted you. In the darkest moments of your life, you can find hope in this reality That God wanted you as his child, if you are a member of faith, that he wanted you. Now, of course, I know a lot of you out there are saying, wait a minute. I thought people came to Jesus Christ because by faith they trusted him as their Savior and Lord. They do. Many has received Christ, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God, even to those who believe in his name. There's, don't we have to do that? Yes, you do. But what this and many other passages is saying is that you believe because God graced you with the ability to believe. The best, the best picture of that I have took place up in a Northwoods church in northern Michigan, my parents-in-law church in the past when they used to have Preachers come through, particularly in those days, not too strong necessarily on English verbiage, good-hearted, um, good livers, if you will, live the gospel, love the Lord, but not trained, not, not theologically astute, and not necessarily uh, 
strong in, in their wording, but one guy said one time, he's talking about having come, and he was there for the event to speak, and, and uh, he put all this together, and here's what he said. God brought me here, but I wouldn't be here if I hadn't come. <laughs> That's exactly what this passage is saying. You had to come. You had to get into the boat. You had to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. You had to say yes to Christ. But God brought you here. Your salvation is a, is a response to your embracing Christ as your Savior. But you were given the grace to do that. God brought you here, but you wouldn't be here if you didn't come. Maybe you're here today, and I'm going to wrap up with this. Maybe you're here saying to yourself, I would love to know that my life belongs to God. I'd love to know that he's working and shaping my life to something like the way Jesus Christ is. But I don't know that I belong to Jesus Christ. I don't honestly know if I love God. Does that mean I'm not called? Does it mean I'm not predestined to this incredible transformation this passage is talking about? Here's what I would say to you. If you desire to experience God's forgiveness, if you're tired of life with you as Lord and Master, if you long to know God personally as the loving leader of your life, you have every reason to believe that God is drawing you right now. Because those are not realities that you will come to apart from the intervening, merciful, loving care of God drawing you, saying, come into the boat. Come into faith. Come to Christ. Lean into redemption. Let God love you through his son. I don't know where you are this morning. My guess is that here in this room, many online, God, the Holy Spirit is just speaking to about your personal state of needing to embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. If you are sensing that longing and that hunger, that's not coming from you. That's coming from the God who loves you, working, drawing. Will you not lean into Christ? Will you not say yes to Christ? Will you not joyfully embrace his forgiveness and the life that he offers, a life that he says every part of your life is working as co-workers to make you, Jesus, in your life, the life of Christ being lived out within you. Let's pray. Lord, you see us and you know us. You know our heart's need. You know every single person in this room and that's watching online that has not embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, God, it is my prayer right now. Your spirit would be drawing. Lord, you know every person in this, this room that has embraced Christ that is now just overwhelmed with the sorrow of wondering why God is allowing this and why God has left them to this. I pray first off, Lord, that you'd come to them like you came to Lazarus' tomb and you knew you were going to heal him. You knew you were going to raise him, and yet you still wept for him. God, come alongside and weep and care and comfort. But Lord, also give us the hopeful.
perspective that you are at work in all things, that you're not wasting any experiences in our life, that you are relentlessly conforming us to Jesus. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning and nobody looking around but me and God, maybe you're here. And God the Holy Spirit right now is speaking to you about your need of embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior. And you'd say, I do want to belong to Christ. I do want. I need God's forgiveness. I realize that God came to die for me, to offer me life. Say, Pastor Mark, would you pray because I need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you're like that today, nobody looking around but me and God, would you just slip up your hand and say, I believe God is speaking to me this morning about my need of embracing Jesus Christ as my Savior. Just slip it up and take it down. Anyone like that today? Yes, thank you. Others. Thank you. Thank you. Lord, I thank you that you pursue us and I believe you to pursue these few that have raised their hand this morning. God, keep relentlessly drawing us to yourself. May they lean into Christ as their Savior, I pray. May we all embrace the truth that you are relentless in wanting to see us live Jesus in our lives. Lead us to that, and Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you were here this morning and raised your hand or you did not, thank you. I would love the chance to talk with you sometime, just try to help you know how to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior. Uh, I'd love the chance to sit down and do that. You can grab me or shoot me an email for that. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord. We are dismissed.